Beloved, the epistle to Diognetus, I'm sure it's something that you're maybe reading this last week, it was a uh, letter written sometime between A.D. 117 and 225. And in this letter, the author captured the paradoxical nature of what it meant for the early Christians to be in the world but not of the world. Even as we are in the book of Ephesians, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, where we understand that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Ephesian believers about what it means for them to live in Ephesus while in Christ and similarly to live in Christ while residing in Ephesus. And for those Ephesian believers, what was amazing and what this particular letter captured, not just about the Ephesians, but Christians in general back then, was that they didn't live in their own communes or cities. They weren't retreated. They weren't living in isolation in caves, contemplating the lint in their navels. They were very different but they lived in the Greek cities and in the non-Greek cities. They followed the customs of the land uh, in a non-sinful fashion, but they displayed at the same time a wonderful, universally acknowledged, at least according to the author, unique way of life. And this is part of what the author said in the letter, quote, speaking of Christians. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens, and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they believe they will be brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice, key phrase, as though brought to life. And he finishes this thought, those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. That is, those who hate them aren't able to give a reason for their own hostility against the believers. Beloved, what this author captures is part of what Paul has bringing home to us, driving home to us throughout Ephesians, throughout the first four and a half chapters into this fifth chapter. Got my math right there. Beloved, what he is capturing is that God takes us from the grip of death of sin to newness of life. Beloved, follow along as I read the passage we have for us here this morning. It's Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 20, where Paul takes this newness of life that we had as part of our deliverance from the death grip of sin and makes it real in our life. This is the word of God, Ephesians 5, and verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of your time, 
because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is a dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. This is the word of God, beloved, that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, before we launch in and begin to unpack the riches that God has here in this text, let me ask a question. How are you doing? How was your week? That's common vernacular of greetings. We say that to one another, and we get those questions as well. And many times we answer those questions, but This morning, I'd like us to think, how do we answer that question in and of ourselves? How do we measure how we are doing? How do we measure how our last week went? How do we anticipate what our week will look like? Is it tasks accomplished, meals made, miles run, people visited? All these are good things, but is that the real measure by which we should gauge how we are doing, how our week is? Well, Beloved, what we'll see in these six verses, there are five commands and there are five characteristics. They're interspersed throughout. And to help us track through this, I'm just going to go verse by verse, and we're going to look at six measures that we as new creatures in Christ Jesus can use to gauge how we are doing, how we are doing now, and how we can excel yet more for the glory of God, for the blessing of one another for our witness to the world, and for our internal joy. The point is, we once were pagans. The Ephesians that Paul was writing to were once pagans, and they did pagan things. But now we are Christians, therefore we should do Christian things. And an intent, a major purpose for this, even flowing from the evangelistic thrust of verses 13 and 14 that preceded the therefore at the beginning of verse 15, is that our new lifestyle will bear testimony to our new life, to a lost and dying world. Beloved, in verse 15, the first measure by which we can gauge how we're doing is we are to live precisely. We are to live precisely. And simply put, what Paul says here, and this is in a sense, verse 15 is kind of the fountainhead from which the rest of the verses flow, at least grammatically speaking, What he's saying here is, you are wise, so act like it. You're wise, act like it. Once you were foolish apart from Christ, we know especially from the first three chapters, but now you have been made alive. God has made you wise, so live this way. Be what you are. The same theme, the same motif that Paul is bringing bringing through the entire epistle, especially chapters 4 and 5. That's why he says, therefore, be careful how you walk. And this is the fifth of the five walks that we get in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 21. Remember, back in chapter 4, verse 1, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have by which you were called. In verse 17 of chapter 4, he said, do not anymore walk like you used to walk as a Gentile pagan outside of Christ. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, he says, walk in love. In verse 8, he says, walk in light. And here in 15, he says, walk in wisdom. And the way he says it is, be careful. 
be careful. This word translated as careful, it means to be characterized by exactness and thoroughness. He's saying walk in a fashion that is according, that is accurate, that is thorough, that is diligent. Walk precisely. The word precise is a great English word to capture the intent and the meaning behind this. He says walk carefully. That's the exact same thing as saying live precisely. God has given us a precise book. He's given us the black and white truths of Scripture. Now, to be sure, applying the black and white truths of Scripture to this gray world is a challenge. We need something more than the wisdom of Solomon. We need the indwelling Holy Spirit to enable us to do these things. But by God's grace and mercy, we can live precisely according to this precise word. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with barbed wire as a means of protection. I remember when I was blessed to go to Israel the first time, and I think it was the first time I had seen, rather than barbed wire, but walls where they have broken glass up on top that they put in as a means of protection to dissuade people from trying to climb over the wall. And if I remember correctly, I think it was around the Garden of Gethsemane when I went there. G. Morgan Campbell, the great commentator and pastor, told of a beautiful story that illustrates what Paul is saying here when he tells us to walk carefully, to live precisely. He paints a picture, Morgan does, of a beautiful garden that's surrounded by a high wall with those broken shred pieces of glass up around it. And there's a little cat that is up on top of the wall that is walking around the wall. It's being very careful to not touch any of the broken glass. The cat is surrounded by many dangers and many pieces of glass, but it never cuts itself because it walks carefully. It walks precisely. Beloved, in the same way, you and I are surrounded by many dangers in society, even dangers from Satan and his minions. And the danger, the more pressing danger, the bigger problem and challenge for us is from self, not our inner self, which is a new self, but the flesh, this body of death. We are surrounded by many dangers, but we can walk carefully and precisely so that we do not cut ourselves, we do not harm ourselves. Well, here in the verse, Paul continues, and he does something that we'll see throughout these verses. He gives a contrast. He says, walk carefully, not as unwise men, but as wise. Uh, The Greek word for wisdom is sophos. Sophos. It originally described expertise in a specific domain, a chariot rider, a sculptor, a warrior. But over time, as the word developed, it came to mean more of just general wisdom. And of course, the Greeks loved wisdom. But Paul's point here is he's not speaking of some kind of generic general wisdom of the Greek world. He's talking about the specific particular wisdom that God gives us in his revealed will in Scripture. That Christian wisdom is practical wisdom that teaches us how to think and teaches us how to behave. And it's the same type of even prior to the Greek world, Solomon, some thousand years or so prior, 900 years or so prior, in Proverbs 3.18, speaking of wisdom, said, She, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. So as we hold the word of God tight and fast, we can do that literally as I'm doing now, but more importantly that we do it figuratively in our heart, in our mind, in our thinking, we are happy as we hold her fast. We are blessed. 
So he says, not as unwise, but as wise. And what Paul here is bringing out, certainly what Solomon brought out many times through the rest of the Proverbs, and something that we see in the rest of the Old Testament, as well as even the New Testament, is that of a fool, that an unwise man is a foolish man. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this uh, about this point of the passage here in the context of this exhortation from Paul to not walk as an unwise man, as a foolish man. This is what the doctor said, quote, In many ways, the real trouble with the foolish person is he only sees one thing at a time, and this monopolizes his attention. He's blind to everything else. The fool always lacks balance. The whole thing becomes lopsided, and therefore there's always an ugliness about folly. Or, end quote, or more to the point of Scripture, that's what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. Solomon, also in Proverbs 15, 21, said, Folly is joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight. And coming back here and kind of wrapping up this charge from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian believers, from God to you and me by way of extension, we could say this, the fool lives recklessly, but the Christian man or the Christian woman walks wisely, lives precisely. And by the way, Paul said the exact same type of thing in his companion letter to the church in Colossae. In Colossians 4, verse 5, Paul said the way the New American Standard translates it, conduct yourselves with wisdom. Literally, it's the same word. Walk with wisdom is what the Greek says. But conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. So when Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, right at that point when he was saying that, he put it in that evangelistic bent. In other words, walk wisely to be sure for your own joy, your own blessing, your own growth, for the encouragement of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and do it as part of your witness, as part of your ministry to the world. Which, that flows from what we see, remember back in verses 13 and 14, I mentioned that before, but back there you read here in Ephesians 5, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church are, are believers. It's made up of believers. It is the church's, by definition, the gathering of the called out ones, the believers. And at the same time, Paul understood what Christ said. There would be tares among the wheat. There would be unbelievers among the believers. So this is a word of warning and a word of encouragement and hope, even for one who might be listening to this, those words read to the Ephesian church or to us here this morning. And that's the kind of heart that Paul captured there in Colossians chapter 4. And what he is saying here is, the best defense when you're slandered, the best defense against an attack on you personally is to live a life that's characterized by goodness, righteousness, and truth, even as we saw a few verses earlier in verse 12 and verse 13. In Matthew 5, verse 16, Christ, in his Sermon on the Mount, gave this charge to the true disciples. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or Solomon again in Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. 
so that should warm the heart of you closet Baptists out there. There is soul winning in Scripture from the pen of Solomon, and we need to be about that business as well, understanding that God is the one and the only one that can reach in and put life where there was no life before, the only one that can turn on light where there is only darkness before, and he uses people like you and me to be lights in this world and to live lives as we desire to walk carefully and live precisely. Beloved, don't give the world a reason to criticize insofar as it depends on you. Therefore, watch where you're stepping and know where you're walking. That's the first measure. The second measure to gauge how we're doing is to invest wisely. Now, when I say invest, to be sure it's nice to invest your financial resources and stocks, yada, yada, et cetera, and so forth. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your more, our more valuable resource of time rather than money. Beloved, we have been given a certain amount of time here on earth by our creator, and we must be wise stewards of this time. And that even ties in with what we saw in verse 14, which to be sure there's the thrust, the evangelistic thrust for a person dead to be awakened by God. But there's also a charge and exhortation to the believers. And we, at the end of last Sunday, looked at Paul's similar exhortation to 1 Thessalonians to wake up, be alert, even if you're already new in Christ. There's an already not yet. Awake sleeper and rise from the dead. Uh, Kent Hughes, describing the nature of Christians or even a church to be at slumber and asleep and lethargic, he said this, quote, it's possible to be asleep and appear awake. It's possible to pray while asleep, mouthing phrases others have used before. It's possible to sing a hymn without being awake to the words. It's possible to walk while asleep and end up in harm's way. It's possible to live a dreamy life of unreality in the netherland of inaction, end quote. Another man said, the soldier who sleeps on the battlefield might never awaken. Beloved, in the same way, an unwatchful church or an unwatchful Christian can become an unholy church or an unholy Christian. And here's where we see the command that he gave earlier, walk carefully. Now we see the characteristic here in verse 16, making the most of your time, literally redeeming the time. Uh, the word making the most of, redeeming, means to buy out of the market. And what Paul is saying here is he's helping us understand that you and I can't save time. We can't recover time, but we can make time, we can redeem time. Now, to be sure, Paul here, part of what he's saying is don't waste time. Be diligent about your overall use of your time. A sluggard in Proverbs 26 is worse off than a fool. So there's, to be sure, an element of that. But Paul's not merely exhorting us to not waste time. What he's saying here is that we must be as shrewd as serpents when it comes to the opportunities, the special, unique opportunities that God gives us. And the reason we know this is the word time here, it's the Greek word kairos rather than the Greek word chronos. Chronos, we get the English word chronology. The word chronos is more of just the general measure of time, of time elapsing, tick by tick. 
but kairos has more of a thrust of a chosen time, a special time, a favorable time of strategic opportunity. For example, to give you a picture of this, Paul uses this word kairos in 2 Corinthians 6.2 when he says, at the acceptable time, kairos, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Quoting from the Old Testament promise to the Gentiles that while Israel is the apple of God's eye and the gospel first comes to Israel, there was even a prophecy for the acceptable, appropriate, chosen, select, key strategic day and time for the Gentiles, for salvation to come to the Gentiles. So that's an example to help us understand what he's talking about here. So what Paul is saying here, again in Ephesians 5, verse 16, is seize every fleeting opportunity. Carpe diem, the pagan Roman poet Horace made that famous. Seize the day. Paul here is saying seize the opportunity, seize the day, seize the hour. There's a sense of urgency about it. In his book, Managing Your Time, the author Horace Mann writes of an imaginary advertisement, and these are the words he used. Lost. Yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes. No reward is offered, for they are gone forever. Beloved, Time wasted here on earth is time lost for eternity. To be sure, just time in general, don't be a slugger. Don't be generally wasteful of your time. I, me as well, I can't do that. None of us can or should do this. But especially with the golden opportunities, the diamond-studded jewels of blessing God gives us in our neighborhood, in our family, in our workplace, wherever we are, seize those. That's why... The psalmist, Psalm 90, verse 12, said, Teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And beloved, the point here is, if you don't redeem this time now, it can never be redeemed. If I don't redeem this time now, it can never be redeemed. And then Paul continues that he gives a further justification because the days are evil. Similar to what Bunyan had in his great allegorical work of Pilgrim's Progress, the world as it is without Christ is the city of destruction. And it's filled with men and women acting as if today is all that matters and tomorrow will never come. But we understand that by God's grace and mercy as he has awakened us, as he has removed the scales of darkness from our eyes, we understand differently and we understand that we must passionately shine our light in this dark world while we have time while we have breath and we do this practically speaking by prioritizing and simplifying by eliminating and reducing by decluttering could be decluttering a garage it could be decluttering our schedule our life we can do this by reducing the good to give more time and more flexibility, more agility to seize the better and the best. So we are to live precisely. We are to invest wisely. The third measure by which we can gauge how we are doing is to think biblically. Again, the Bible teaches us how to think like wise men. The Bible teaches us how to act like wise men. Verse 17 
Paul says in another contrast here, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's interesting, in verse 15, uh, the word for unwise is a sophos, the negative particle a and sophos, just unwise, no wisdom, lack of wisdom. The word here translated as foolish speaks more towards moral stupidity. It's the kind of heart and thinking that Solomon had when he wrote Proverbs 18, verse 12. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. That's what Paul says we ought not be, but here's the contrast. Rather, understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, the irrational impulse of the fool is the contrast to the intelligent reflection and action of the child of God. Again, similar thinking Paul had when he wrote again to the Colossians, Colossians 1, verse 9, in, in talking about his heart and his motivation of prayer for this church in Colossae, which at that point <clears throat> Paul had never even visited before. He said in Colossians 1, 9, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the filled he's talking about here with the knowledge of his will and in verse 18 in Ephesians 5 in a bit, we'll get to another occurrence of this word filled. It's talking about being controlled by. It's what dominates our thinking. It dominates our behavior. And that passage in Colossians, he's talking about the Bible, the word of truth, dominating and controlling our thinking. But here in Philippians, when he says, don't be foolish, and understand what the will of the Lord is, we understand that the will of the Lord, the revealed will of the Lord is in the pages of Scripture. But even in the context of seizing that fleeting opportunity, those special chosen moments that God may come across, it's the application of the black and white will of God by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit to applying that wisdom to those opportunities. So we don't need to have writing on the wall. We don't say God told me unless we're quoting scripture in our heart or in our mind, but we apply his revealed will to these opportunities. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, it's a good thing to carry your testament in your pocket, but it's far better to carry its message in your heart. People sometimes say, live and learn, and there's an okay measure to that, but there's a better way. What God tells us in Scripture, especially in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and some of the wisdom literature in James and elsewhere in the New Testament is rather learn and live. And Christian men and women are supposed to lead the way in thinking. And I would say there are far too many Christians who have weak minds and strong thumbs. The thumbs are strong from scrolling and playing, while the minds are weak from a lack of reading and praying. And God told the nation of Israel, God tells you and me, one of my favorite Old Testament verses, Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So, beloved, we are to live precisely. We are to invest wisely. We are to think biblically. The fourth measure to gauge how we are doing is we are to submit continuously. 
Now here in verse 18, there is a shocking comparison, a paradoxical comparison and contrast, both related to control. At the beginning of verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Uh, the word dissipation literally means unsaved, not saved. It's describing one that can't be saved. It's a, uh, super, it's a hyperbolic word that describes one who has abandoned himself or herself to reckless, immoral behavior, to debauchery is the way some other translations translate that word. It describes an uncontrolled and wasteful life. Now, here in the context, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and besides the temple of Diana, they also had the cult of the wine god Dionysus. And there was great abuse of alcohol with orgies in Ephesus in supposed worship of the wine god Dionysus. And that is part of the background of what Paul is writing here. William Hendrickson, speaking more generically about being drunk, had these words to say, the commentator William Hendrickson, quote, Intoxication is not the effective remedy for the cares and worries of this life. The so-called uplift it provides is not real. It's the devil's poor substitute for the joy unspeakable and full of glory which God provides. And then he finishes, Satan is ever substituting the bad for the good. Now, beloved, uh, this, of course, could be a topic that could take an entire sermon or even more, but we will just say this. Understand in Scripture, neither the Old Testament or the New Testament, God does not demand total abstinence. There were times there were priests in the Old Testament. There were men that would make vows where that would be part of it, but God does not demand that. What he is talking about here, what God is forbidding for us here in Ephesians 5.18 is the abuse of wine, not the use of wine. Um, we know this, for example, and this even ties into the qualifications for leadership. Uh, for the elders, in 1 Timothy 3, 3, elders must be not addicted to wine. In same chapter, verse 8, the deacons must not be addicted to much wine. The Titus 2 woman, in Titus 2, verse 3, older women must not be enslaved to much wine. And just a quick point there. Notice the higher standards for elders. Uh, for the deacons and for the Titus II women, they must not be addicted to or enslaved to much wine. Elders must not be addicted to wine. Now, I don't think that means that deacons and Titus II women can be enslaved to wine. That's not the point there. But it does bring out the higher qualification. But this is a bit of a digression. Let us come back to verse 18, because now <coughs> we come to the contrast where... He uses that one example and reminds the believers, reminds us of the higher joys and the better pleasures. But be filled with the Spirit. Literally, be filled in Spirit. Be filled in the Spirit. Now, certainly as we've seen in this magnificent letter, there's a tremendous emphasis on the believer being in Christ. But also there's a tremendous emphasis in Ephesians already, of the believer being in the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 18 and 22. Chapter 3, verse 5. And then later on in chapter 6, verse 18. What Paul is saying here is, you are to be controlled by, governed by, guided by the Holy Spirit. 
when you think of alcohol, there's a control there. You're under the influence of the alcohol. And this is where the shocking comparison comes in. What he's saying is that you are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. But there's a radical contrast that comes from the paradoxical comparison. He, and this is when he says, be filled with the Spirit. This is not you, please listen, this is not you having more of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit having more of you. So the comparison is both under the control of the wine and the Spirit. The contrast is that excess wine, drunkenness, is an uncontrolled state. Rather, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a greater self-control. So the contrast is uncontrolled versus self-controlled. John Stott had these choice words in bringing out the comparison and the contrast. People who are drunk give way to wild, dissolute, and uncontrolled actions. They behave like animals. The results of being filled with the Spirit are totally different. If excessive alcohol dehumanizes, turns a human being into a beast, the fullness of the Spirit makes us more human for it makes us more like Christ, end quote. It's part of us growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And there's an interesting dynamic. This is a command. It, the Greek grammar, it's a passive imperative. So it's passive, and that means it's something we receive. It's not something we achieve. But it's still a command. So how do we do this? How do we be obedient to this passive command how do i measure my obedience to this specific command to continually be filled with the holy spirit to be submitting continuously to god as my lord and savior how do i measure this well there's different ways we can look at it we could say that we submit continuously to god by surrendering by repenting by listening and obeying or we could go to galatians chapter 5 verse 22 in the beginning of verse 23, with the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and use those attitudes to reflect these actions. So, live precisely, invest wisely, think biblically, submit continuously. The fifth measure, beloved, to gauge how we are doing is to rejoice Corporately, And we see this in verse 19. And what we see in verse 19 are expressions of a spirit-filled life. Expressions that validate the filling of the Spirit of God by speaking, singing, and praising. And then even thanking in verse 20, but we'll get there later. What he says in verse 19 is speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Literally speaking to yourselves. But it's plural. He's not saying don't just talk to the man in the mirror. We speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalmos, humnos, the Greek words. The psalms here would point primarily towards the Old Testament psalms, but may include even some other aspects and elements as well. The hymns are probably more geared towards the New Testament songs of praise. The spiritual songs would certainly differentiate them from the secular songs of the time. And there can be secular songs that may be okay. That's not necessarily all evil in and of themselves, but the spiritual songs he's talking about here 
bring that out. And I'm praying and trusting that my brother Gary will sharpen me and correct me in between the first service and the second service so where I may misspeak on any of these. But beloved, one main point here is to understand that the Hebrew culture and even the Greco-Roman culture, it was very ensconced in an oral history. Prior to the invention of the Gutenberg printing press in 1450, hymns and songs were absolutely necessary and invaluable means of communicating the gospel and truth. Now, when I say that, do not misunderstand. They are still absolutely necessary and invaluable, depending on how we learn, depending on how we remember. I'm horrible uh, at remembering lyrics of songs. There's just something, there's some mismatch, there's some disconnect in my brain. Other people are more geared towards that. But even as we were singing that beautiful song, The Love of God, I do have a portion of that. And that is joy and a blessing to my heart when we do this. But again, remember the context here, to one another, speaking to one another on these. That's the corporate dimension of this. That's the rejoicing corporately. Now, I'm going to read a couple quotes to you. Uh, one is from 2014, one is from 2017, and these are very pointed. Understand this. I want to tell you who it, this, these quotes are not for, and I've come across these quotes even in my study here in Ephesians, one of them this week. In the context of uh, the live streaming that we do here, during the whole COVID situation, it was a tremendous blessing, and we thank God that we already had our live streaming set in place for that. So if you are live streaming from home, if you're part of our body, if you are health compromised, if you have serious concern before the Lord around your health and you're still at home, these quotes are not for you. We trust God. We trust the Holy Spirit to work in the heart and mind of each person. One of the dangers in a situation like this is, though, for people who aren't necessarily concerned about their health to just kind of like the convenience and, uh, you know, I don't feel like getting up today. I think we're just going to, you know, worship on TV. So here are two quotes. One of the commentators <coughs> that I read this week said this in 2014. Why not curl, and this is in the context of the corporate command that we are to sing and speak, or should say speak to one another in this way. Why not curl up on a Sunday with a box of chocolates and watch a worship service on a computer or TV? Because that does not allow you to do what this verse is teaching. Vertically, the Spirit prompts us to sing with our whole being to the Lord Jesus, and we should do so horizontally in the presence of other believers. End quote. In listening to Alistair Begg a couple months ago, still in Ephesians, he said this in 2017. And I'm bringing out these years because this was prior to 2020. He said this, quote, None of this will be accomplished in the online church. You looking at your phone without any involvement. Such a notion is an embarrassing travesty of New Testament Christianity, end quote. Now, again, if you're watching from home and you have concern about your health, we praise God that we have this live stream. And I've been so blessed. I even had some fellowship this morning with brothers and sisters that we didn't see for a while, but I knew were here in the heart. So, again, we trust God to work in the heart of each person. So, again, the charge here is if this is becoming something of convenience rather than concern before the Lord, that is where we should apply this because what God is commanding us here 
is to rejoice corporately. And he continues verse 19, singing and making melody. So speaking, singing, praising, making melody with your heart. And here's where it turns from horizontal, which was the first focus to one another, now vertical to the Lord, to the Lord. And the expression of Christian joy from the heart. And beloved, even in the whole context of the speaking psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and singing, making melody with our hearts, song has always had a great place in the church. In the very early church, Acts 16, verse 25, when Paul and Silas were bound in prison with bleeding backs, they were singing hymns to God. Acts 16, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing humnas of praise, singing, actually singing humnas, hymns of praise to God. The historian Pliny and Tertullian also talked about how singing always had a great place in the church's life and worship, and it always will in our heart as well. And we are so grateful and blessed by the leadership and the shepherding and the giftedness that's reflected up here on the platform every Sunday morning. And beloved, good singing rings the death bell of deadness. Rejoicing is a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the melody of your heart, not the pitch of your voice. Although you will never catch me singing solo. Because that wouldn't be an edifying. And beloved, it's horizontal, it's vertical, it's external, and it's internal. It's the external to one another, and it's the internal with your heart. This is heart worship, not lip worship. Well, live precisely, invest wisely, think biblically, submit continuously, rejoice corporately. The sixth and last measure to gauge how we're doing is to thank profusely, thank continuously, thank comprehensively. And the point here is that we understand as part of our newness in life, whereas once we might have done right in order to gain heaven, now on the side of our salvation, we do right out of gratitude for heaven. This is the duty and joy of thankfulness. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things. My children have heard me say, never say never or always, and always remember that semi-tongue-in-cheek, except if we're quoting God. What's he say? Always giving thanks for all things. That's comprehensive. That's thanking profusely from the heart, according to the situation, and in every situation, all the time. Beloved, thanksgiving is always the right response from for every Christian in every circumstance, in every season of life. And we understand that the seeds of sin are everywhere, looking to be sown in the heart, like weeds in the garden. It's amazing how fast the weeds of sin can take over. But a heart filled with thanksgiving is a weed killer. It's a sin killer. Perhaps there's no better one. One commentator, in describing this kind of heart attitude, said this. This presupposes a deep underlying faith that God can produce good out of even the most unpromising situation. And that thankfulness, therefore, can be felt because of the confident hope that in some wonderful way, God will make even disaster and suffering an occasion for later blessing. End quote. We could say it another way. This is a little simpler, shorter. Contentment is the companion of thankfulness. 
And I think Gary, as he was shepherding us away from the song into the sermon, even had some aspect of his prayer about contentment. Beloved, contentment is the companion of thankfulness, and thankfulness is the necessary companion of contentment. The law of commutation, my engineering brothers will recognize. Well, at the end of verse 20, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. We aren't just thanking some nebulous cosmic force. We are thanking the creator God of the universe. G.K. Chesterton said this, the saddest moment in the life of an atheist is when he realizes he has something for which to be thankful, but no one to thank. Praise God, we have someone to thank, namely our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Beloved, nothing is more sure to isolate hearts than a spirit of complaint. In the same way, in the better way, in a contrasting way, perhaps I should say, nothing is more sure to fuse hearts into oneness than a spirit of thanksgiving. Beloved, our responsibility as those who claim the name of Christ is to set the name of Christ simmering on fire from our grateful heart that it will spread to the hearts of others. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for the power of your word. We thank you, Lord, that we are not left adrift without instruction, without knowing where we are going, without knowing and understanding how we are to get there and how we are to walk. Uh, Lord, we praise you and thank you that we have this newness of life and that it has meaning and impact in what we think and what we imagine and what we say and what we do. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'll be glorified in all that we do. Be glorified in our fellowship here this morning. Bless our brothers and sisters who are at home live streaming. And Lord, we do thank you that you have protected us and preserved us. And we thank you for the technology that you've given us, even for a time such as this. And as we close our time here, Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified in our song as we speak these words to one another and as we speak them to you. It's for your glory and honor, Lord, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.